Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Hi, if I haven't met you, my name is Brendan, and I have the privilege of leading the Young Adults Ministry here with Crosspoint. And now, about a year and a half ago, or a year from January, my wife and I moved here from Vancouver. And so when you move to a new city, you'd like to take some time to kind of figure out what this city is all about. And so we drove around and tried to get a sense, what is Edmonton about? And on the surface, it kind of felt like there wasn't much of a spiritual landscape. We drove around, everything felt very functional, practical, home of hardworking people. But that all changed when I got a job. I got a job as a real estate photographer. And so this meant I drove all over Edmonton taking pictures of people's homes. And so one thing about this job is you never quite know what you're walking into. Sometimes we would go to homes and they would just be so beautiful, immaculate, and you're like, there is no way anyone actually lives here. Other times you go to homes and I, we call it sock burners, like you want to burn your socks after. <laughs> you feel like you just walked into an episode of Hoarders. There's just boxes up to the roof, ashtray by the bedside table, dishes everywhere. And you're like, where am I going? <laughs> but one thing that I came to realize is that Edmonton is very spiritual. When you talk to people, they're often not very open about their spiritual beliefs. But when you go to someone's homes, what they care about most is on full display. I remember walking into homes of uh, people from Hindu or Sikh faith, and you would see altars and shrines and religious paintings around the home. Walk into Muslim homes, and you see, again, religious artifacts relating to their faith. Homes of Christians who would have scripture verses plastered all over the walls. Even people that wouldn't consider themselves religious, for some reason decorated their entire house with little Buddhas and meditation crystals. And for other people, it was their families that were plastered all over the walls that you could tell that family matters most. And then coming from Vancouver to Edmonton, there was another religion that I was very unfamiliar with. And I think everyone in Edmonton is a part of it. You walk into homes and you see these jerseys that they're, <laughs> they're in people's closets or they're on people's walls. And there would be different uh, pictures of their heroes of faith usually donning the numbers 99 or 97. So what strange world have I walked into now? <laughs> but what I've come to realize is that we are formed by the things that we love. James K.A. Smith, who wrote the book, You Are What You Love, he says, we become what we worship because what we worship is what we love. That the thing that we worship, the thing that we put our time, our energy, and our money towards, that is often the thing that forms us, because it's the thing that we love most. And as we dive into our text today in Romans 12, I want to ask you the question, what do you worship? What are you devoting your time, your money, your energy, your desire to? And the simple follow-up question is, is that making you more or less human? 
And so as we go through the, the book of Romans, it's a letter written to a church in Rome. And Paul understood this idea that worship affected formation. And he's speaking to a church in Rome that was in a polytheistic culture. And that the worship of many gods was on full display. And especially in the city of Rome, the, the cults of the emperor, the worship of the emperor as divine was in full display. And it's in this context that Paul calls the church in Rome to make sure that their allegiance is aligned with Jesus. That Jesus is worth worship. And so let's turn our eyes to the word of God. And so if you have a Bible, you can flip to Romans 12 verses 1 to 2. We're reading just two verses this morning. And so Romans 12 is really a hinge verse within the book of Romans. Up to this point, Paul has been really unpacking all the different dimensions of the gospel. And then as he comes to this text, he makes a transition towards how does this make a difference in our lives today? And so Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. And as we've already kind of walked through, what we love is what we worship, and what we worship forms who we become. So as Christians, that the worship of God forms us into becoming fully human. And that is really our big idea for today, that the worship of God directs us towards becoming fully human. And as we walk through this text, kind of line by line, verse by verse, we will come to see that we become fully human by surrendering our life, by reorientating our loves, and by transforming our mind. It's a call for our entire being to be reorientated towards God. So we'll begin by surrendering our life. So right off the start, Paul says, I appeal to you. So we're going to pause there. Paul starts in this conversation about worship, not with a command, but with an appeal. As he seeks to persuade us. And he recognizes that there are many things that we could choose to worship. But here is why you should worship God or worship Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're exploring, you know, you're in the right space, this is a good space to be in. But what we have to all recognize is that we all worship. It is our default setting. But we have the choice of what do we worship. David Foster Wallace, who is an author... And he wrote this uh, speech to the graduating class of Kenyon College in 2005. He's not a Christian, you know, agnostic at best. But this is what he has to say, which I think is really profound for us. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is to what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual lure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths 
before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship the Oilers, and you'll be in a constant state of despair. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> that, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't him. <laughs> Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are our default setting. And so we are created to worship. But the question that we have is who or what are we worshiping? And is that making us fully human? And so Paul continues as he walks through trying to persuade us to why worshiping Jesus matters. And he says, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God. And here is the distinction. Paul says, therefore, in light of everything that he has said, in light of the gospel, this is how you're to live. And so transformation in the Christian faith, it takes place through the mercy of God. It's not about what you can do on your own, about the own strength you can to try and reach the standards of God. But it's actually in your brokenness that Jesus comes and he extends grace to us. And this grace not just only saves us, but it becomes the very fuel of the Christian life. That our life is lived in response to the gospel. And this is the appeal from Paul. And he says, okay, so we've, in light of the gospel, this is how you're to live, in light of the mercy of God. And he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he says, present your bodies, your entire life before God as a living sacrifice, which is a bit of a paradox. A sacrifice involves death, and yet he's calling us to become alive. And in this time, the sacrificial system was part of, of Israel, that they would sacrifice something valuable to God, be it for the forgiveness of sins or to be in relationship with God. But yet, when it comes to the New Testament, and when it comes to Christian, Christianity today, we don't operate out of this sacrifice. And so a small part of that reason is because the thing that we sacrifice, the thing that has the greatest value of us that we place before God, is our entire life. That we are called to place our entire life before God. And it's about actually coming alive. We're not part of a dead religion, but a living faith. And yet, there still is something that needs to die. Earlier in Romans, in Romans 6, 11, Paul says, So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As we put to death the sin and brokenness within us and in the world, we actually become alive towards God and become fully human. And so when I talk about being fully human, I recognize there's a lot of different ways that the world interprets that. And so according to scripture, according to God, this is how I understand becoming fully human and fully alive. Is that as humans, we are created in the image of God. And we are designed to reflect the glory of God to the world. And yet, as we recognize, we are broken and we do not always live into this identity perfectly. But when we look at Jesus, scripture says that Jesus is God fully revealed that he fully lives out the image of God, displaying the glory to the world. And so in the language of Paul, when we live in a way that is 
holy and acceptable to God. It's living our lives in line with what Jesus taught and how Jesus lived. That as we become more like Jesus, we become more human and become fully alive. One of the church fathers, Irenaeus, he says, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. That as we live how God designed us to live, that we actually display his glory in the world. And this is our spiritual worship. And so when Paul says spiritual worship here, the word that's translated spiritual is not the normal Greek word that's often translated spiritual. But it's the Greek word logikos, which was a philosophical term, which is to be carefully thought through and to be true and real to what is designed in nature. And so our spiritual worship, often we think of spiritual worship as the songs that we sing, And so spiritual worship is not less than the songs that we sing, but it's actually greater. It's the songs that we sing and the life that we live. And that as we live in line with what Jesus has taught, that we become fully alive. God is not out there to kill our joy, but he's actually called us to become humans that are full of life, full of joy, displaying his glory in the world. And so we've covered a ton in this short little passage and so how do we kind of bring this together? Well, if we want to, I want to turn to the message of Eugene Peterson, who paraphrases this so beautifully. He said, see, here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. It's taking your everyday life, your ordinary life, your eating, sleeping, going to work life, and placing it before God. Now this verse is something that stuck really close to my own heart, because I've felt me trying to live this out, and it's reminded me of my personal call towards ministry. So I played hockey, I loved hockey, that was my thing that I worshipped. And then through weird circumstances, I got traded, caught, released. All of a sudden, the rug got pulled out from underneath me, and I didn't have anywhere to play. And so I started to reevaluate my life. I started to look back towards my faith and try to figure out where can I find meaning and life and purpose. And I remember reading my Bible coming across 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And it says, Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, For in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And it was in that moment that I felt a call towards vocational ministry. But the reality is, as I've worked out that call, I've recognized that verse extends far more than vocational ministry, which is definitely a part of it. But I've had many different jobs. I work construction, dug ditches, photography, I roast coffee. And the reality is that that verse is just as applicable to all of that. That when I dig ditches, you know, it's not just this terrible job that I have to do, but it's actually an opportunity to present it as worship before God, giving my all because I do it not for my boss, but for Jesus. And this has reshaped the entire way that I view life. And then as we talked before about that list uh, from David Foster Wallace, who says, you know, all these things that we value and we look at and become such a crushing weight is because they were never designed to be the thing that we build our life upon. They're a gift. They're an opportunity for service. 
We look at our job. Our job is not something that we are to worship and find our identity from. But when we receive our identity from Jesus through that grace that we receive, our job becomes an opportunity to serve. And that frees us. That I don't need the validation of that job, but I actually get to you know, work even harder. Because I don't do it for myself, I do it for Jesus. And I get to serve my coworkers, my customers. I get to serve those people because I've been freed from that weight. And this is how, this is the call. It's, it's an entire new way of viewing our work and our life in line with Jesus as spiritual worship. But as I reflect on my own life, I recognize it's a beautiful vision, but I don't always live it. And it's hard. And we look at the world and there's so many different opinions and worldviews, political ideologies that's grasping for our love and our desire and our attention and pulling us away from this beautiful vision of the world. And this is why Paul warns us. And to be fully human actually involves not just the life we live, but it's a reordering of our loves. And so you pick up in verse 2 where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. And what Paul recognizes is that we are not neutral. We are not a clean slate, that in fact we are deeply formed by the world around us. We are formed by the phone that's in our pocket or in our hand. We are formed by the things that we take in. We are formed by the people that we are surrounded with, that we are becoming what we love. But we want to make sure that the world doesn't hijack our loves. I also recognize when we talk about do not be formed in the patterns of this world, that when you ask many different people, they would agree with this, but have very different opinions of what it means to be formed in the patterns of the world, especially in our political kind of polarized world. And so there was a, a temptation for me to use this as an opportunity to th share what I felt was wrong with the world, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to actually say, what, what does Paul think? What does Paul think is this deforming pattern of the world? And so what I've come to realize is I, I think Paul is talking about these, this idea as a disordered desires leading to false beliefs resulting in a misplaced worship. And so in Romans 1, earlier back maybe months ago now, in Romans 1, 24 to 25, Paul says, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so we see disordered desires, which was the lust of their hearts, which led to them exchanging the truth of God for a false belief and a lie, which resulted in misplaced worship of worshipping the creation instead of the creator. In 1 Peter 1.14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The disordered desires that are often our default settings. John Mark Comer, in uh, his book, Live No Lies, he talks about this as deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And so I just want to take a second to kind of dive a little bit deeper in how our desires get moved and transformed and looking at kind of the idea of consumer culture. So back in the 1950s, after both world wars, 
during this time, these factories were going and producing a lot of things for the war. And the factories were actually making a good amount of money. But in this time, there's this weird thing where people didn't buy things they wanted. They bought things because they needed them. And what these business owners, factory owners, governments realize is that, yeah, we're going to have to slow down production, but we really don't want to slow down production. We want to keep this train rolling. We want to keep making more money. And so we actually need to change the way that people approach buying things. And so Paul Mazur, who was part of the Lehman Brothers, this kind of group, he says, we must shift America from a needs to a desire culture. People must be trained to desire and want new things even before the old has entirely been consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desire must overshadow his need. See, the role of a citizen, being a virtuous citizen, has become superseded by the role of being consumer. A few decades before that, G.K. Chesterton says that the huge modern heresy in our world is that we alter the human soul to fit the mod modern social conditions instead of altering the modern social conditions to fit the human soul. That there's this dehumanizing force. And so marketers have recognized this. If you want to change someone's buying habits, you don't speak to their reason. We all think of ourselves as reasonable people. But they said, no, if you want to change someone's habits, you speak to their desires and you speak to their hearts. Because once you win over their hearts, they'll bring their reason in line with that desire. Now, if you want this on display in my life, just go back a couple weeks ago. So my wife and I decided to go to Costco. On a Sunday afternoon, after the church gathering, on an empty stomach. <laughs> you can already see where this is going. So we go to Costco, and right away, I have disordered desires. I am very hungry on the borderline of hangry, so it's, it's not a good thing. But we have our list. We have written our list. We've planned our meals. This is what we need. This is the desires of our heart that's good for us. And so we know we're going to say no to everything else, and we're just going to get what's on our list. But I don't know if you've been to Costco. Costco is intentionally designed to make you buy more. All the essential things are around the perimeter of Costco. All the non-essential things are in the center of Costco. That means you have to go through the entire store to get what you want, and you're always seeing the non-essential things. Also, what is on the outside of the store? It's the chips, it's the pop, it's the, <laughs> the things that will derail your desires. <laughs> and so I come in, I have disordered desires, I'm hungry. I know what's true, and then I go into Costco, and Costco begins to form me. And don't even get me started on the samples. <laughs> That's a whole other part. But I have these disordered desires, which are formed by the patterns of the world, patterns of Costco. And it leads me to false beliefs and misplaced worship, where I believed I needed that enormous bag of chips, even though it's just my wife and I. But in that moment, all my reason... Was, was in line with those false desires. <laughs> and so it's funny to laugh at my lack of self-control in Costco. But in reality, we feel this tension in our lives. That we have disordered desires in our own hearts. Things that are pulled away. 
And then we have these intense pressures of the world and different political ideologies that are looking to pull us away from how God's designed us to live. And we can look at good things that God has created us. But as soon as those things become elevated above the love of God, they become an idol and they become destructive. So you can look at the idea of the love of your nation, which is a great thing. God desires us to love other people. But when your love of a, of a nation becomes elevated above God or the love of a political party becomes elevated above God, it becomes an idol and actually becomes the opposite effect, where it dehumanizes other people that don't believe the same things you believe. And so the call that God has given us is actually about reordering our desires, bringing our loves in line with how God has called us to live. And so how do we do this? How do we become a new creation? Well, Paul says it's through the transformation of our minds. So we'll pick up in verse 2. So he says, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul says, In contrast to being formed to the world, you are called to be transformed, to become something new. That the Christian life is a life of transformation, but it's about the internal transformation, the renewal of our mind, the renewal of our hearts, so that we can live differently in the world. And what Paul recognizes is that we live in the intersection of two ages. We have the age of this world, which is defined by sin and brokenness and death. And we have this new creation, which is defined by life and renewed way of thinking. And new creation that's breaking into the present. And we live in the intersection of that, which means we live in tension. But Paul also says that the idea is that we become transformed when we're in tension. And our world hates tension. It's way easier to jump to one side of the pole or the other. It's harder to, to navigate through the middle. Or it's way easier to just do what is comfortable and easy instead of stepping out and trying to live on mission. And it's when we move into tension that we actually become transformed through the renewal of our mind. If you look at diamonds, diamonds are coal that are put under immense pressure. And they become transformed into something that's so beautiful and valuable. And it's in this tension that we become transformed. And I know from my own life, as I've tried to take different points of stepping in on mission and trying to love and serve different people, you butt up against the brokenness of the world. You butt up against the brokenness of your own heart and your own deceitful desires. And it's an opportunity to transform our mind as we step out living in mission and trying to align ourselves with God. And so how do we do this? How do we transform our mind? Well, we are called to take our thoughts captive. Paul in 2 Corinthians, is very strong. He says we are to destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That we are to evaluate our thoughts and to bring them in line with God. And this actually involves our habits, that our love is directly formed by our habits. And so this involves taking opportunity to read Scripture, to actually surrender ourselves to God's word to allow things to become in line with that. 
It involves taking habits of community to live, with other, to live on mission with other Christians. And as we do that, we begin to form, become formed into the people of God. And it's through prayer where we get to come before God and, and take these habits of prayer. And when you look at the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer is structured in a way to reorder your desires. The first half of the Lord's Prayer is all about God. God is elevated. God, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We reorder our desires around God, what God values and loves. And then we turn to our own needs, that we recognize that, God, we need you to provide for us, that we need you to give us the faith and ability to forgive others that have hurt us. And so when we start, we move through these habits. That's why we this previous series that we talked about, the habits of the heart, that as these habits begin to form our heart, they form our desires. And it's actually about becoming alive, about living with what is true. And I know as I was preparing and praying through this, just asking God, what do you want to say to your church? And one thing that I felt impressed in my heart is that I believe that maybe there are some of us that feel the weight of living out a lie. Then maybe we believe, you know, I'm not good enough. How could God love me? Did he see what I did? Or maybe we lack faith in God and say, you know, I don't, I don't think God's going to come through. I need to take this into my own hand. I need to grab this. And for some of us, we're, we're stuck in that place where we're, we're trapped under that lie. And here's the good news of Jesus. That Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. These actually come to set you free from the broken views of God, broken views of yourself. He says, I see your brokenness. I see your despair, and I love you, and I've rescued you, and I died for you. And God desires for us to walk in truth and to be people of love. And so as we conclude, we're going to move towards the time of worship. But I want to just end with a final story. Back in BC, I was, uh, took part in campus ministry. And the campus uh, missionary and I would go out onto the campus and we would ask students these spiritual questionnaires, which were questions around life and faith and things that they value. And the first question we would always ask them is, what is your greatest life goal? And without fail, it'd be some variation of, I want to be rich and famous. You'd get the odd student be like, I want to pass my midterms. I want to make it to next week. But most of them were... <laughs> I want to, you know, I want to get through this education. I want to get this degree so I can get a job, so I can make some money, so I can become famous. And then we would ask them other questions around their spiritual background. And then the campus missionary would always ask them this question. He would give them a scenario. He says, you have two options. Option one is that you will be rich and famous, have more money than you could ever imagine. But you have no close friends you have broken family, no close relationships. Option two is you are poor, you are barely scraping by, but you are rich in relationships. You have people that truly love you, you have family that cares for you. Which of these two options do you choose? And without fail, every one of the students would always choose option B, which is very contrary to what you think. But I think it's so helpful in illustrating how their desires have been formed by the world to away, away from what actually their deepest desire is.
and it's to be loved, to belong, to actually be a person of love, walking in loving relationship. And I believe for all of us, that's our desire, is that we actually want to experience love. And so I'm going to invite the, the band up as we move towards concluding and praying and worshiping through song. But Augustine says, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. And that as we looked out at our world, and you know, the last few years have been so full of turmoil, and we've seen all these different things that we've wanted to put our lives on, to build a foundation upon, and they become shaken, uncertain, and it's in this time that the foundation of the love of God has become even more solid and something worthwhile to build our life. And so we've talked about this incredible call to become fully human. It's actually surrendering our entire life before God. It's a huge call. It's your life. It's the way that you think. It's the things that you love before God. But why do we do that? It's because God is worthy of our worship. That while we were sinners, while we were broken, while we were in despair, that Jesus saw that and out of an incredible act of sacrificial love, he came down to the earth and died a death that we deserved so that our sins could be forgiven and that we can actually walk out as people of love, that we are saved and rescued and that now we are new creations in Jesus. And it's this love that we can build our life upon. And so as we move towards singing and worship through singing, I just encourage you to come before God in a posture of surrender, recognizing that often we are redirected, feel that tension away from God, and yet God is waiting there with his arms wide open. So let's come before God and say, God, I want you to reorder my heart. I want you to Bring me in line with what you have called me to be. And then let us just worship God together as a church. Let this be an anthem for us. That amidst of many different opinions and things desiring for our heart, that we can stand as a people saying, God, I give you my heart. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. And we thank you for your sacrifice and the way that you get to renew our entire lives. And so we, become, we come before you as a church, as a people with our arms open, and say, God, we give you worship because you are worthy. And we, give, we extend love to you and others because you first extended love towards us. So Jesus, we love you. We praise you. Would you do a new thing in us? Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So 
please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.